Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. And now on with the work at hand. I encourage you to turn with me, please, uh, in your Bibles or on your devices to the book of Exodus, chapter 13. And we will begin in verse 17 in just a moment. Exodus 13, 17. And as you're turning here in this room, I invite those in the Family Life Center to turn with us as well and those who are tuning in online as we continue our ongoing exploration of Exodus. Where have we been thus far? You'll remember that the last several weeks we have been watching this story unfold that is our story, a story in which an enslaved people are being made free. But we've been attempting to imagine yeah, that the, the, the slavery from which these people are being delivered is, is a slavery not of physical bondage only, but something much more sinister. I mean, yes, the, the enslavement of, of the, the Hebrews under Pharaoh and the domination of the empire of Egypt, that was bad enough physically. The back-breaking, mind-numbing work of brick-making and constructing the infrastructure of an empire that would continue to perpetuate their own subjugation and humiliation, right? But beyond that, what we've been saying these last few weeks is that they were also enslaved in another way, perhaps even more crippling. They were enslaved in the imagination. Because when all your occupation can focus upon is the building up of the very imperial power that is set over you, you have no room in the mind, the heart, the soul. You have no room in the imagination to consider the possibility that there is another way to exist in the world outside of Egypt. And you'll remember that as Moses has already begun uh, this, this dialogue with, with Pharaoh to set my people free, it's usually followed with another phrase, set my people free, comma, so that they may worship me. And we've been attempting to imagine that in the context of worship, then and now and everywhere all the time, when people are in true worship, there is a kind of transformation that occurs. We enter into a kind of a mystery that Brueggemann describes this way. We are able to somehow host and embrace a, a world that is different than the world in which we are living. And so when he was requested, let my people go so they may worship Pharaoh, kept doubling down on the pressure, doubling down on the torment and the enslavement. And so two weeks ago, we saw God send a series of plagues, a consecutive series of plagues meant to methodically, systematically dismantle 
the very infrastructure that had held the people enslaved in mind, body, soul, and imagination, each plague, like as Eugene Peterson says, a wrecking ball smashing into the very structure of empire and power and domination. Well, last week, we recognized that now Pharaoh has relented and has agreed to let the people go. And after a, an evening meal that was cooked in a hurry and, and eaten in a hurry by people who were dressed in a hurry, now they had been set free. And what kind of freedom will it be? What kind of journey will it be from Egypt to true liberation? We pick up in verse 17 of Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer. For God thought if, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by, I love this, the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt, prepared for battle, and Moses took with him uh, the, the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. They set out from Sukkot and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. This is the reading of the sacred word. And it's reliable and it can be trusted. Let's pray. And now, God, we open not just this sacred text, but we, we pray for your help in opening the sacred space of our minds and our hearts that we may lay vulnerably before you all of our experiences that are helping us to interpret these words, that they may be more than words on a page, but life-giving promises that lead us in our own pilgrim path. We ask now that you would bless the words that I bring, that they may be more than just the words of one man, but words of life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Today I want to talk to you for just a few moments about spirals and what else am I talking about today? Skeletons <laughs> and sacred pyrotechnics. Spirals, skeletons, and sacred pyrotechnics. First, spirals. The text begins a moment ago with these words. We just heard them. So God led the people out by the roundabout way in the wilderness 
toward the Red Sea. I love this turn of phrase, by the roundabout way. The roundabout way. There are different ways to interpret this text. Your version may say, by the wilderness way. One thing I read, one commentator said it also could be called the, uh, a circuitous way. He led them toward the Red Sea, but through a circuitous way, a, a roundabout way. And we, and we know why. The text reveals the, the assumed motive of God, which was, well, if we, if we take them the shortest route, it'll be by the way. If we go the way Waze tells you to go, you punch it into Waze, and Waze will always get you there the fastest route. Doesn't matter how long it takes you to get around there or how far you go, the fastest route. God said, I, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't follow ways on this one because it'll take them by the Philistines. And, and if they say, see them, they will be threatened because they know that they're not ready to make war. And they may even have a change of mind. They may, the word is actually repent. They may repent about their freedom and choose to return to the enslavement of Egypt. So instead, he leads them on a roundabout way. And I, I just love that turn of phrase because when I think about roundabouts, I think about what is becoming more popular now around Atlanta. They've been around the world for a long time. But I think about uh, Clark W. Griswold. I think about the European vacation, and he goes on this roundabout, and he's trying to, look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament. But he can't seem to get outside of the inside loop. And so he just keeps going round and round and round. Look, kids, again, Big Ben, Parliament. Sometimes I think that is an image of the way we live, what you're seeing right there, we're just going in circles and circles. Going the roundabout way can feel like you're going in circles. Like you're going in circles. You get up early in the morning and you do the thing. You feed the kids, you dress the kids, you make sure they don't smell funny and you send them to school. They do their thing all day while you do yours. You're doing the work and you're running the errands. And oh, before we get home, we got to stop at the grocery store because we're out of milk and we do laundry and fix the dinner and make sure the kids are answering the fail mail notices that came in the mail. And then you put them in bed and maybe you're going to watch a few minutes of TV, but you fade after about 15. Why? Because you're exhausted. You got to go to bed. And why? So you can get up the next morning and keep going. Or look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament all over again the rhythm of our life in the roundabout way can feel like we're going in circles unless unless the circles in which unless the circuitous way in which we try unless the circles that we feel in our, are a spiral see spirals are interesting because in a spiral, you still go in circles. You go in circles in a spiral, but a spiral makes a circle go somewhere. See, sometimes just because it feels as if you're going in circles, it doesn't mean that you're not going somewhere. And maybe the clearest place where we notice this is above our heads in the cosmos, the solar system. Most of the time, for a long period of time, we have talked about the cosmic uh, neighborhood in which we live in kind of a heliocentric way. Here's a model. We think of it as the sun and the planets revolving around the sun or rotating on their own axes and then revolving around the sun. And that's kind of the model we go by. It's a lot better than what we used to go by, which is the earth is the center and everything revolves around us, which we know is not true. We know we rotate around the earth or the sun or the revolve around the sun, but it's only half true 
Because, see, the sun travels at 77,000 kilometers per hour through space. Which means if we wanted a real model to demonstrate what's actually happening in all this spinning and rotating and revolving, it looks more like this. It looks like the sun moving. Just kind of take a moment and drink this in. Watch. Moving through space. And yes, everything around it is still spinning and moving and going the circuitous way. We're still rotating on our axis a thousand miles an hour. And we're still revolving around the sun once every year. But it's not like we're doing all the spinning and going nowhere. We are racing through space. Just because it feels as if you're spinning in circles, it doesn't mean that you're not going somewhere. A 12th century mathematician once observed, the Fibonacci was his name, Fibonacci once observed that there is kind of a pattern to the universe that looks like a spiral. Life itself spirals. There's kind of a sequence when Fibonacci talks about this, this mathematical pattern he sees in nature. It looks a little bit like this. Watch these numbers uh, as they transpire. There is a sequence called the Fibonacci sequence. It's a series of numbers that on the surface looks like it has no particular order, but it does. It's 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, and so on into infinity. You come up with the Fibonacci sequence by taking the previous two numbers and adding them together. For example, 0 plus 1 is 1. Well, that's the next number. 1 plus 1 is 2, which Dr. Culpepper is about as much math as, as I did in the program. So thank goodness there wasn't much math that I was required to do because that's about where, how far I go. 1 plus 1 is 2. But if you look at 2, 2 plus 1 is 3, 3 plus 2 is 5, so on, it repeats. But if you were to take the Fibonacci sequence that he observes in all of nature and you put it on a graph, guess what it looks like? You put one square at 1. And you continue to watch it grow and watch what the direction is as each square is sequentially larger by a predictable measure. It begins to spiral. Fibonacci said you can see the spiraling, which is kind of the, the signature of the creator itself all through scripture. One of the best places that, we, not scripture, all through life and existence and, and the cosmos. One of the greatest places to see is above our heads in in the billions of galaxies that have a, a spiral to them. Or not only the galaxies, but the weather systems that, that make their way across the earth, hurricanes and tornadoes, they spiral. If you move up to see the northern lights, you notice that the northern lights have a spiral to them. The spiral is found in the things that are breathing and living and slithering and crawling around like snails things that crawl and swim. The spiral is found in all kinds of flowers. Flowers grow in spirals. Spiders web in spirals. Look at the flowers as we continue. Watch one after the next example of how there is encoded in our very existence a kind of spiraling life. Spirals, even your fingerprints indicate that there is a spiraling to you. The, the DNA that is encoded and holds your constitution together is a spiral. And why? Why? Because watch. When you spiral, you expand. 
The spiraling of life is the expanding, the growing, the enlarging, the, the widening of life. When you spiral, you don't stand still, which means you could feel as if you're going in circles. But what if the spiral is intended to grow you and yet feels like the roundabout way? It feels like Griswold, Big Ben, kids, Parliament. But at the same time, what if the whole point is the spiral is to grow us. It, there's even a theological overtone. You know, we've talked about the Paschal mystery, the rising and falling and rising again of Christ and all of life. Well, when you spiral, guess what you do? You rise, mm, plateau, you fall, mm, you rise again. But each rising and each falling and each rising again, we become freer and more faithful versions of who God has intended us to be. So he takes the Hebrews on a roundabout way, not by accident, not because there's a glitch in the Waze app, but because they needed to spiral from the smallness of their imagination making bricks all day long. They needed to spiral and have time to expand their capacity to imagine a world other than the world they used to live in. See, the spirals on purpose. The roundabout way that you grieve and you sometimes wish would just straighten out ought not straighten out because it's in the spiraling that we become who we are intended to become. So what do you do when you just spiraling and it feels like you're going nowhere and you have no evidence that you're growing or expanding or becoming who God wants you to be and all this encircling, well, you just keep on trucking. You remember the words that we find in Galatians. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Do not grow weary in doing what is right for we will reap a harvest at harvest time if we do not give up. We just keep, look kids, Big Ben, Parliament, maybe it's the way of the universe so yeah this morning I'm talking a little bit about spirals but there's one more thing about spirals do you know that everything that is in your wake when you're spiraling everything that you've left behind in your spiral comes with you in the spiral the Sun may be dragging us along but it's also dragging every other bit of debris that its magnetic force is tugging forward so that means everything in your past that you've spiraled away for comes with you when you go, which brings us to the second movement of the sermon, which is skeletons. Skeletons. The text continues, this part of the story is wonderful. The, the Israelites went up out of the land of Egypt prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites saying, God will surely take notice of you and then you must carry my bones with you from here. I love this part of the story. It says they, they went into the wilderness prepared for battle. Well, we already know that they're not going to be in battle with the Philistines. God's taking them on an alternate route, a circuitous way, a roundabout way. But they still dress for battle. Do you know why I think this is so? Because there, there will be battles to be waged. I mean, not against Pharaoh or the Philistines. That may come and that may go. But battling Pharaoh is one thing, battling what they must battle on their own interior in this spiraling vortex of becoming who they are. That is the real battle. You see, it's always hard work leaving Egypt. Leaving Egypt is always hard work for them, for us, always it is. Because they have to now reckon with the possibility that this adventure into the unknown 
with all of its risk, is healthier, better, freer, truer than the familiar enslavement that we knew and could predict and control. So they dress for battle, and so must we. Because when we go in this spiraling vortex called faith, we take everything that used to be along with us. That's why I say perhaps it's time to take skeletons from the closet. You remember Joseph. So here the text says, before they left, they dug up the bones of Joseph and took them with them on their exodus. Why would I call Joseph a skeleton in the closet? Maybe this. Because Joseph was the first among them to learn how to be comfortable in the empire. More than four centuries ago, he, you know, he was sold because the family rejected him, sold into slavery into Egypt, and things didn't look very uh, promising for him. But because of things, he just emerged one event after the next into a, a positions of authority until he was second only to Pharaoh, and now comfortable and enjoying the power and privileges of the empire. He brings his family, and they settle, and for a few years it goes very well. But at the opening of Exodus, you remember the the text says there was a new Pharaoh that came to town, and he didn't know Joseph of old, and everything changed. See, Pharaoh, Joseph, represents a memory of how we got down to Egypt in the first place. He symbolizes and, and, and reminds the people of of what it took to become comfortable in the empire of Egypt. So digging up the bones and taking them with them on their exodus was a measure of faith. It was a ritual act, a demonstration that, no, no, we really are serious about taking everything that we established of ourselves here into a brand new identity. It raises a question for me. What, What are the bones that you have to exhume in order to truly become everything God is calling you to become? What bones must you dig up in order to truly leave the land of your enslavement? Because some of us, if we're going to spiral toward this life of faith and becoming and enlarging and growing larger and bigger in our love of God, if we're going to grow in that way as we spiral, we cannot leave either the high moments or low moments. We bring it all with us. And for some of us, we have to dig up the bones of great joy at one point and take them with us. But others, we have to dig up the unresolved conflicts that were never never fixed, never dealt with, the unconfessed sins, the brokenness that we tended to bury and really never talk about. In order to become truly who we are in this great spiral called faith, we dig up everything that got us to where we are. Everything. Which means the sun doesn't rise and fall on us individually, but I want you to pay attention to what happens in the text. Later in the New Testament, uh, there's a writer who writes this book called Hebrews, and in, in the 12th chapter, he refers to all this that's going on, this event, and this is how he puts it. He said, by faith, Joseph, this is so many years later, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made this promise uh, of the Exodus or made this mention of the Exodus when, when he gave instructions about his burial, right? So you got Hebrews referring to this thing that Joseph did. But now is the point in the sermon where I want you to go with me and kind of take the camera angle and back it up. 
And let's look at the entire spread of what we've been studying. Because here we have way over here at the end of Genesis, Joseph dies. But as he dies, he says, hey, when you all leave Egypt, take me with you. And then generations passed, and then they're in exile. I mean, they're in, they're in slavery, and the exodus transpires. And they're remembering what he had said to do, and so now they're doing it. But we don't even have a version of that story on paper until generations later in the exile. In the exile, the exilic writers are talking about this old thing that happened, and now in the New Testament, generations further. There is this thread. Are you seeing this thread? Well, or could I put it another way? There's this hmm, spiral that the people of faith began down in a, in a dirty, smelly um, jail cell in Egypt when Joseph thought all was lost and he rose to power. He begins to spiral and expand and become. And all of the story that continues to go in circles and circles and circles, it includes all of that faith story, including yours. Now, we too are in the wake of this spiraling vortex that we call faith. And it means that we have to dig up our own bones. Now, what is it that you have to dig up and bring with you to become as free as God wants you to be? See, that leads us to the last movement of the sermon. Sacred pyrotechnics. All through the scripture here, this text that we've chosen to read today, the, the image of God leading is what's dominant. God leads from the beginning and God leads at the end of this text. God is going to lead, but here is how it's described. The text reads, They set out from Sukkot and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And I just want to stop right there for a moment and just imagine with you, isn't, it, isn't that where God always camps? on the edge of some wilderness with us. See, all, all through the sacred writings, we're, we're introduced more and more to a God who shows up in what I'm going to call this morning liminal spaces. The liminal spaces are those spaces between spaces, you know, after one thing has happened, but before the next thing has happened, the, the crevices of life. See, they had already been released from Pharaoh, but they are not yet quite on their journey into the wilderness. They're camped on the edge of the wilderness. And that is where so much of our life is camped. I mean, we're already married, but we're not yet pregnant. We're already pregnant, but we've not yet given birth. We've already given birth, and, and, and she's walking. She took her first steps, but she cannot tie her shoe yet. We've already graduated them from high school and we've picked out the bedspread and the color that will match their roommates in college, but we've not yet moved in. We've already launched our kids. They're already well into adulthood, but we are not yet ready to downsize to a smaller house. We're already thinking about retirement, but we're not yet ready to slow down. We've already buried so many of our loved ones and friends with whom I've done life, but I have not yet been called home myself. See, so much of life is right there on the crevice, right there as we spiral through the edge of the wilderness. And the good news, the gospel in this text, is that God camps with us on the edge of the wilderness. 
That's the good news, that God camps with us at the liminal edge of every wilderness. So the text continues. The Lord went in front of them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them along the way in a pillar of fire by night to give them light. That just kind of rolls like, you know, right off the tongue, doesn't it? Almost like it was meant to. So that they may have light, they may travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So we have these two images that are part of what, because I know you go to JCBC Sunday School, I know that you know that these are two of, of several images that are part of a theophany, which is a big revealing of God. Smoke, fire, thunder, lightning, earthquakes. Big traditional demonstrations of God's presence. We're about to see a big one in a few chapters, in a few weeks, whenever we get to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up and encounters a theophany. White smoke show, right? But here, there are two examples. There is a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to lead them. And there's kind of a traditional way to interpret it. We interpret it as a cloud, as, as fire. We say, well, he's a cloud by day so that the people would not be suffering beneath the scorching heat of the desert wilderness. And that's great when we think of it that way. We think of Psalm 121, the Lord is a, a shade at my right hand. We think of that, and that's appropriate. We also think of the fire as traditionally being interpreted as you know, the fire at night so that they would be safe at night, be warmed at night. We think of Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear, right? But there is another way to think of the pillar of fire and of cloud. Because in some places, fire also symbolizes knowledge, knowing, certitude, certainty, awareness, information. <laughs> For example, Jeremiah knows that there is this word that is in him that must be proclaimed and says, if I shut up, if I keep quiet about this thing that I know, It'll be like a, a fire shut up in my bones. So fire can mean something about knowing an encounter, an experience, um, a, a moment in which you personally encounter the holiness of God. But he leads not just by fire, he leads by cloud, which is kind of the opposite. A cloud is fuzzy. A cloud is hazy. I can't see through a cloud. There was fog this morning in some places around John's Creek. You can't see through a cloud. A cloud represents unknowing. And I think it's beautiful that God is demonstrated as desiring to lead people toward freedom, but in these two pathways, through knowing and unknowing, because both are the way of God. We can know some things, but there are some things we cannot know. And the call of faith is to yield our life before the one who will not tell us turn-by-turn turn directions on how we're going to get there. In the 13th century, 12th century, there was a, an, uh, an anonymous uh, writing, a book um, by an anonymous writer entitled The Cloud of Unknowing. We gave it a title later in, in time. The Cloud of Unknowing was uh, a mystic, a spiritual mystic who wrote about what it means to encounter the holiness of God and how sometimes you can't completely know how to interpret it. You can't completely control it or predict it. It's about 
um, a pilgrimage into God's holiness. And this is what he has to say about it. For I tell you this, one loving, blind desire for God alone is more valuable in itself, more pleasing to God and to the saints, more beneficial to your own growth and more helpful to your own friends, both living and dead, than anything else you could do if you had this burning desire to be free from the empire of your own enslavement. If you have this desire to grow, to make your circling walk mean something and actually grow and go and do something, then it means you, you, you have this desire to follow the God of knowing and unknowing. Because by fire and cloud, God will lead you. But it requires seasons in which you yield how much control you have on this journey. So maybe today you've come to this place and it's a, it's, it's a time for you to consider where you are on the edge of your own wilderness. And you consider that the circles you've been making in this journey have, have perhaps been more meaningful than you thought. Maybe you know someone or someone here today needs to dig up some bones that, that need to be brought along with you in your journey to freedom. But maybe what we need to hear most is this. Of all the things you can know and all the things you can't know, you can know this. The God who made you and the God who sustains you will never leave you and desires more than even you desire to liberate you until you become everything God had hoped you might become. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Good and loving God, we do stop in this moment to acknowledge that we are at so many different places in the spiraling vortex of this, this faith. And we confess to you there are days when we just want to shut it all down. We confess to you that there are moments when, when it seems to be absolutely meaningless, without purpose, but we pray that somewhere in someone's heart today, you would remind us that you are tugging us Godward through every moment and experience, every joy and pain, every hurt and every hope. You're tugging us forward, expanding us until we become everything that you desire for us to become. Move among us now even as we respond to your grace. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.